are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. There is one case that all people are guaranteed to follow closely, whether they are true crime aficionados or not. That is the one that happens where they live. There is something about the proximity of crime that changes people's relation to it. It suddenly becomes clear that no matter if you live in a quiet village or the most happening area of your city, a crime close to home has the power to rock your sense of safety as you go about your daily life, question things you would not normally question and rethink your daily habits. It was the same with me, an Edinburgh resident, when the murder of Jodie Jones happened. A 14-year-old goth girl residence in a small village outside the Scottish capital. Her death was violent to a level that is unusual. Scotland does indeed have a bloody history and we have birthed some unrepentant killers, but these things feel very much in the past as you enjoy the quiet countryside that surrounds Edinburgh. So I, like pretty much everyone else in Scotland, followed the case closely. It was splashed across the Scottish papers every day with new information and speculation. Quite quickly, the police closed in on Jodie's goth boyfriend, Luke, Scotland, like other countries, has been changing its attitude towards many issues, but a vein of social conservatism still runs strongly through the country and the goth subculture is not one that is particularly well understood. But in a small village, Luke and Jodie would have stood out and attracted attention with their choices of clothes, piercings and music. I can well remember the shock among church elders in the village I grew up in when I donned a pair of ripped jeans in the early 90s. More information came out about Jodie and Luke. Jodie was a lovely girl full of life and was navigating with the rest of her family her father's death from suicide. Luke's parents had divorced and he was fully embracing the rebellion of teenage years. Both smoked marijuana and occasionally bunked off school. In these ways, they were pretty typical teenagers. However, as I read the press around the murder, something which people would talk about in hushed tones in the work kitchen, a darker picture of Luke appeared. He stored urine in bottles in his bedroom. He carried a knife. He had written about murder in school essays. He was a fan of Marilyn Manson, well before the current accusations against Manson surfaced and he mutilated Jodie to replicate the Black Dahlia murder. There were hints he was unusually close to his mother. The list went on and on, but perhaps the most damning fact was that Luke had led people to exactly where Jodie's body lay. It felt like case closed. Luke was found guilty of Jodie's murder and sentenced to 20 years in jail, where he still remains today. After that, Interest in the case was still there, but remained periodical. Occasionally, a red top would print a story about Luke's time in jail, and a wee bit of interest would revive, but never for long. Everyone mostly carried on with their lives. That is until I came across the podcast 
Through the Wall by Naomi Channel, a TV producer and true crime podcaster. I thought I knew the case and I thought I knew about the lone woman, Sandra Lean, who thought Luke was innocent and I had dismissed as delusional. Somebody enamoured with the martyrdom of being a lone voice in the wilderness. Listening to Through the Wall, though, turned everything I knew about the case on its head. Here are some, but not all, of the revelations in the podcast. Luke was able to lead people to Jodie's body because his dog was trained as a tracker dog and knew Jodie. Luke was a child at the time, but was interviewed without a parent or guardian there. Police never looked into other suspects. Keeping urine like he did is often a sign of trauma and I imagine finding your girlfriend's mutilated body is probably quite traumatic. The Marilyn Manson CD the police found in his room was free with a magazine Luke bought after Jodie's death. There was evidence of sexual assault at the scene of the crime but it was never investigated as a sex-motivated murder. Timelines from witness testimonies don't add up and there is no forensic evidence that puts Luke at the scene of the crime. Channel's interview with Luke also wipes away the image of Mitchell as a sulky, rebellious, rude, drug-taking teen with an interest in violence, replacing that image instead with an articulate and intelligent man. The most damning counter-evidence of all, though, comes right at the end of the podcast, where Channel and Luke's chief supporter, criminologist Sandra Lean, finds out from a whistleblower that Police Scotland are about to dispose of forensic samples in the case against their own guidance. It's heavily implicated that the police are actively covering up and these samples, if retested with modern DNA techniques, could well support an appeal from Mitchell. The case has strong parallels with that of the West Memphis Three, who were tried and convicted of the murder of three eight-year-old boys in 1993. America was in the grip of the satanic panic, and the most confident of the accused, Damon Eccles, who was a goth, listened to metal and had a petty criminal record chafed against the restrictive social codes of the Bible Belt and in many ways fits the same mould as Luke Mitchell did. Someone who positioned themselves consciously as an outsider so therefore was seen with suspicion from the start and easy to paint as Satan-worshipping psychopaths who are a danger to all. Echoes and his fellow accused are now all free, but not without a punishing stint in jail. Eccles was in solitary confinement for so long that his eyes are permanently damaged. The case of the West Memphis Three is now widely seen as a miscarriage of justice. But crucially, although the men have been freed, this has been due to an unusual type of plea called an Alford plea, which is not available in Scots law, rather than be given a full exoneration. While Mitchell and his supporters may have started to take steps down the path to an eventual release, the technicalities of law make this a labyrinth rather than a Roman road. So how do I feel now? having heard the compelling evidence that Channel puts forward in her podcast with her soothing voice. 
I feel like I've learned a valuable lesson in not believing everything in the papers or taking things at face value. I was busy at the time graduating university and trying to find a job, so like many people, I'd taken the news headlines and not think much more of it. Perhaps I was so willing to believe in Luke's guilt and accept what was reported in the papers because deep down knowing that someone who could do something so heinous could be walking free along the streets I walk is an uncomfortable proposition and we all feel safer with someone, anyone, accused and behind bars. That momentary need for a sense of safety in some cases obviously overrides a colder, harder look at what has happened. However, where did the fear, the sense of not being safe come from? It feels very much to me that it was whipped up by the reporting of the case. So now I am aware, what do I think of Luke's guilt? In my mind, it is definitely in question. I do not want to come out with a statement that Luke is obviously innocent. That feels like too much of a pendulum sling the other way. And now I feel cautious about following too much of a gut reaction in this case. When you've swung wildly to one side, you do not balance out by swinging wildly to the other, but rather by stepping back, keeping an open mind and assessing everything. I do, however, believe that there is enough counter evidence to put some serious question marks around the investigation and conviction. I also believe that it is in the public interest to get to the bottom of what happened during the investigation and trial. In a country whose government has declared it wants to be the best country in the world for children to grow up, we appear to have easily forgotten who is a child when their rights don't fit the narrative we have chosen before all the evidence is in. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.